Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, you're listening to On the Environment, a podcast of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Aaron Rubin, and we're in the studio today with Angel Sue. She's the director of the Yale Environmental Performance Index for 2014 and a Yale-China environmental policy scholar. We were in the studio last time to talk about China's environment. We're going to continue the conversation today. Angel, thanks for joining us. Happy to be back and to continue the conversation, Aaron. So, Angel, one thing we talked a lot about, and we're not alone in talking about this, Mm -hmm. is the state of China's environment whether it's getting better or worse, and what the levers are for improving the situation. Something I, I want to bring in today is to what extent are China's problems just that, China's problems? Should the world in general be concerned about local environmental issues in China? Um, what extent are these exceptional? Yes, I think this is a really great point. So when we talk about global environmental problems, I think that you can't have a conversation that doesn't involve China. China's really the 800-pound panda (laughs) in the room when it comes to the environment in terms of many issues. So climate change, for example, China is now the largest emitter of greenhouse gases or carbon pollution. So number two is the United States. In terms of energy consumption, China is now one of the world's largest energy consumers. In terms of air pollution, its air pollution goes beyond its boundaries and affects citizens in Japan, Korea, even California in the United mm-hmm. States. And so, and also in terms of water scarcity and water consumption, that's a huge issue for China. And so I think that's the reason why people are so interested and so concerned about what China does in terms of the environment. And so it's a very, very critical issue that doesn't just affect China, it affects the world. And when we talk about and we think about China's trajectory of development, This is what Chinese officials have told me with consistency. And last summer, I spent six weeks traveling around China and speaking to local officials. Without exception, every leader told me, well, this is a natural phase in our development process. They would say, or this is is a process. And we're not going to solve our environmental problems overnight. And we're a developing country. That's, That's something that they say absolutely all the time. We're a developing country. Western countries like the United States and European countries got the opportunity to develop, and now it's our turn. And so I think that um, that's really that's really key. So is this just a natural product of China's economic development and industrialization, or is what we're seeing in China right now beyond the scope and scale of anything that we've seen before? We've seen before exactly. And so I think that's really the the critical question. And I would argue that in terms of a lot of issues, urbanization, for example, we've never seen the pace and scale and scope of urbanization that China is now experiencing today. So I think for, for a lot of issues, and then that obviously manifests itself all in, different in, ways. Yeah, in, in all different ways, exactly, in terms of air pollution, in terms of water consumption, energy consumption. And so um, I would say that that what we're seeing now in China is, is, is quite unique, that we've never seen in, in, in any other economic transition for any other country. I think that might be one of the reasons the world is so fixated on the environment of China. Right. I mean, clearly there's a lot of things you can talk about when you talk about China. Right. Um, but the environment's really taken hold maybe because we're seeing something 
that we feel there's no precedent for. Exactly. And clearly, in the Western world, we had tons of air pollution, river pollution. Um, the Great London Smog yeah. that killed a couple thousand people. Yep, thousands. Yeah. Um, we had air pollution events throughout um, the 60s in Los Angeles and Pittsburgh. Right. And we still have air pollution today in the United States. We're not exempt for that. So Salt Lake City earlier this year, because of temperature inversions, suffered very severe air pollution. So that being said, so yes, what, what we're seeing in China is is fundamentally different from because anything that we've Because it's so much seen. greater. It, yes, because the, the scale, the scope, the size, so much greater. But that being said, there are also other countries that are now embarking upon similar trajectories. And I think that that's what's of concern. So yes, we haven't experienced or witnessed what we're seeing in China now, but the danger is that other countries like India, for example, other Southeast Asian countries, as they're starting to develop and starting to experience GDP growth rates of over 10% per year, wow. that they might embark on similar trajectories. So that, that I think, is, is really the key. And I think that's the reason why so many people are really focused in China. So, so one thing that, that I've also been studying recently is the rise of eco-cities, green cities, smart cities in China. And so now there, you have a lot of uh, international firms, you have other governments. So Singapore, for example, has a cooperation with Tianjin, which is uh, a municipality outside of Beijing. And they've been cooperating on developing and designing greener cities, so less uh, environmentally intensive or uh, yeah, impactful. what does a green yeah. city look like? Right. So um, for for China, that's that's actually the question. That's actually the question. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no consistency at, with at all in terms of how they define what an eco city and a green city is. And I think that that is really the challenge. How do you define what these cities should look like in the future to minimize the impact? Now, are these and, cities yeah. being planned or are we taking existing cities and sort of retrofitting them to yes. be cleaner cities and that's that's the that's the key question so should we, we don't be, know should we be focusing on retrofitting and improving old cities or should we be building new ones and for china these eco cities for the large part are new cities hmm. so they're new developments um the tianjin singapore example is is a really um is, is a brand new development they're building everything from the ground up there was another really f famous project that received a lot of international attention outside of Shanghai. So a British engineering firm called Arab had partnered with the Shanghai Industrial Investment Corporation to develop uh, this one island just three hours from the coast of Shanghai. And there's a wetland, it's a Ramsar protected site, and they oh, were going to build an entirely new eco city as a demonstration for what might be possible for the future. So yeah, so what we're talking about here in these in these eco city projects, it's really making China almost a petri dish, right? So like a laboratory for global for, innovation. Right, exactly, for how cities in India might develop, for example, versus other parts of Southeast Asia or even Latin America and Africa that are going to be experiencing increasing rates of urbanization in the next couple of decades. I'm a little critical of the idea that you can build a new city that will be so green right. that it would counteract the effects of a new Delhi right next door. Right. Um, do you, may, maybe this is too soon to ask this question, but mm -hmm. do you have an idea of some of the innovations people are talking about? Like, are we looking at a full, um, you know, electrical car grid or hydropower stations for buses? What what are people talking about in terms of yeah. building these uh, systems? Yeah, I think that that's uh, also a really great question because, our cities, the solution to our energy crises and climate change and our environmental problems, or are they part of the problem? Because a lot of data show that cities are actually more resource intensive than rural areas. Oh, yeah. that is not what I had heard 
you know, five years ago, I in in graduate school was being told people in cities are just using fewer resources. So we should all be in cities. And maybe that's not true. No, I think that there's a lot of conflicting and contrasting literature and studies to suggest that actually in a lot of cases, um, people might be consuming more energy by living in cities versus rural areas, right? Because you think about, for example, if you're in an urban agglomeration and you live in a suburban area Mm -hmm. and then you have to now own a car in order to get to to drive into the city to, to go to work. Versus whereas if you're living on a farm, you just live and you work on the farm and that's it, right? Okay, so we're yes, looking right. you know, across an urban metro area. Right, if right. If you count suburbs in. Exactly. And that makes sense to me right. sort of uh, intuitively. If you count suburbs in a city, right. of course it's not going to be the most sustainable. Right. Um, I mean, obviously you're getting efficiencies and economies of scale and the benefits of agglomeration, right, by living in cities. But so in terms of these eco-cities, going back to your question, yeah. so what, what, they're, what they're thinking about is, is, yes, you're absolutely right, trying to devi- design public transport systems that use clean, renewable energy resources, minimizing personal ownership of vehicles in these areas, maximizing or, I guess, sorry, minimizing the distance that, that people have to walk to get to use these public transport, and then also... Um, designing urban forms in a way that that can reduce energy consumption and personal travel patterns and also designing buildings to be more energy efficient using materials that are less energy intensive and can conserve energy better um, so it's it's they're, they're talking about a lot of these things and then also um, water recycling so trying to use um, wastewater better and mm-hmm. rainwater so th- I mean it's like a whole series of metrics and thinking um, around how to how to really reduce the impact of, of eco cities it's an exciting idea and yeah. and something that I've seen from afar is a willingness on the part of the Chinese government or investors in China to really tackle these 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 new research and design projects head-on yeah know, we know they invest more in renewable energy technology than we do for example right, right. And actually, this is a, a very interesting point. So taking these two examples, so the Tianjin example, which was a government venture with the mm-hmm. Singapore government, and then the Shanghai Dongtan project, which is an international firm. And that project was supposed to, the first phase was supposed to be done in 2010. It was supposed to be launched at the Shanghai Expo then, which its theme was a better life, right? So that was the theme right. of the Shanghai Expo. But because of various misunderstandings and political alliances falling through, that project, if you look at it now, is still just fishermen and farmers living. There are a couple of wind turbines that are there. Um, but the the Tianjin EcoCity, on the other hand, are, already has around 25,000 residents. And this was and the well- one that was essentially built by a, a British Yes. Firm. And is that from private finance yes. or okay well, well that was that was part of the issue is that the british thought that the chinese government was going to be footing the bill and the chinese government thought that the british were would be footing the bill and so there was a lot of uh, okay so in this second city yeah that a british company essentially manufactured um we're seeing a little success so far the, the Singapore Tianjin, yes, the Singapore Tianjin one. And I think that this goes back to indicators and data, obviously, which I love and I study and I've dedicated the last seven years of my life to these these types of questions. So, for example, in the Shanghai Dongtan question, they were trying to adopt a very obtuse and very esoteric concept of ecological footprint. Right? This was which the government. Is, 
this is the engineering firm this, in, okay. in, yeah, in, in England. And so they were trying to use as this internationally accepted measure of biocapacity versus um, the amount of land area needed to sustain a person's livelihood in one, one area. So it's, it's a commonly accepted consumption measure, but it's difficult to explain to a fisherman who lives on the island, right? And so right. the people there just had no idea or no conception of what an eco-island means and, and how they're supposed to fit into this overall narrative. But then in the Tianjin Singapore case, what they decided to do is to actually fit their indicators and their definition of EcoCity into the existing policies and the environmental targets that the Chinese government had already set at the very highest levels. Hmm. And so I would argue that in the definitions, the data, the indicators actually really do make a difference when trying to conceptualize and develop these frameworks for how to think about environmentally sustainable development and eco-cities. Now, the implication of what you've said is yeah. when you make the measures of success, right. you know, the things you monitor to say, well, is this sustainable city, making them more context-specific, more in line with government priorities leads to more success. Does that mean we're seeing that the city um, is, is having some success? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned, they've already completed or almost completed the first phase of development in the Tianjin EcoCity. And now they have around 25,000 residents who have already moved in. Wow. Whereas nobody ever moved in. I mean, there, was, there were no residences even built in the Dongtan project. And actually, a fun little fact, I almost took a job Please. On, that, on that project. Really? <laughs> After I finished my master's program in England. And at that point, I, I had a little bit of concerns um, in terms of what, what they were doing and how they're thinking about sustainability. And I ended up just moving back to the United States instead. But yeah, so it's, it's been in, an interesting project to kind of follow. Yeah, um, So from, from 2005 when they first announced that initiative and then to, to just kind of be studying these issues throughout the years and seeing China change so quickly in the short time that I've been studying China. And so it's, it's, really, it's really been fascinating. Well, I'm glad you're here with <laughs> us, um, although that I'm sure would have been fascinating. Uh, this maybe is a tangent, but these 25,000 people who've moved to this new mm -hmm. city, I know creating cities from scratch is not a new phenomenon in China yes. at all. Um, what, what draws them there? Are, are there new jobs? Are there sort of green production facilities mm -hmm. that offer, um, you know, factory jobs? What are we seeing as the reason for the city to exist besides being a test city of... right? Well, Tianjin, the whole Tianjin, Beijing, Hebei corridor. So that's actually an urban agglomeration that's identified as exactly that. So this Beijing, Hebei, Tianjin corridor, that area is just growing really, really quickly. Um, and it has been over the last couple of years. And so it's a very attractive place for um, for investors, for people to move to, to work. And Tianjin in particular is also a special economic zone. Okay, so, so these are already places yes, where there yes. are... Lots of incentives exactly. for new production. It's near Beijing. Exactly. You're on the coast. Yeah. So there's a high-speed rail you can get from Beijing to Tianjin in a matter of 30 minutes. This train travels at 330 kilometers per hour. It's just very, very quick. And um, yeah, so that's Angel, I'm getting high. images of, of, <laughs> of, of China in 100 years where we're just seeing a completely different world than the one we know in the West with our 
sort of spaced out crumbling cities i know amtrak i I took amtrak this past weekend at dc and both ways i was delayed by a minimum of of two hours and it's just in china i just feel like that wouldn't happen happen. yeah Yeah. exactly you know so there's there's the good and the bad of of a very centralized um powerful government um that sort of brings me to another thing i wanted to talk about last time we spoke you mentioned this um sort of homegrown citizen response Mm -hmm. to lack of monitoring, lack of response around environmental pollution in China happening online, citizens gathering together, I don't know, anonymously or Mm. if their names are on it, to protest. I'm curious what that looks like. I'm curious what the mechanisms are for translating people's um, displeasure and protests Mm. online into actual changes on the ground. Right. Well, I think that 20 years ago, these mechanisms didn't exist. So right. you didn't have social media. You didn't have online. I mean, maybe you did, but they were in very rudimentary forms back when we had dial-up connections and AOL and chat rooms. You had to be on a computer yeah, in exactly. a room somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think technology has become ex- exceedingly more mobile, and so people – Pretty much everyone in China has a mobile phone. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer living in rural Yunnan province or if you're a high-powered business person living in Beijing. Everybody now has access to these platforms and to social media and to voice their dissent or their concern over anything in China. And what we've seen is that social media in China has grown faster than it has in many other parts of the world. I mean, I think in Asia in particular, I think the recent statistics that I saw that um, has also demonstrated that the Philippines are actually very quite active on social media and and social media has really taken off in in that country as well. So yeah, but China, China also very, very active. And I think it's because the citizenry lacks a voice in many other forums. So they can't vote. They don't necessarily have political forums where citizens can go and air their grievances or town hall meetings. They don't they don't have these forums, these these official public forums where formal they can mechanisms. Yes, formal mechanisms. And so that's kind of what the internet and this third space has also provided. And I think in addition, civil society is also very nascent and just very in the early stages in China. So even though environmental NGOs have been around for the last thirty years and they were the first civil society organizations that were tolerated and allowed in China because of their seemingly apolitical nature, it's still just not very well developed. And um, even when I was interviewing local government officials last year, many of them said, yes, we do have some NGOs, we do have some civil society groups, but our interaction with them is not very strong and they're still quite underdeveloped and we're still not quite sure how to how to deal with them, what our relationship is with them. And so it's not like in the United States where – so I used to work at a think tank in Washington, D.C., and because we were situated basically on Capitol Hill, we were going there all the time and giving them white papers, policy recommendations, and briefs as to what kinds of things they should be doing. And in China, they don't have those kinds of mechanisms. And so I think that that's why the Internet has become increasingly popular. It's really taken off. Yeah, it has really taken taken off and has been a popular forum for Chinese citizens to, to air their grievances. And the government really follows it very closely. So so there, so you have government officials logging on to Twitter or... Uh, you mean Weibo? Weibo, <laughs> yeah, which is the Chinese version. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, you see them following the latest trends, are they sensitive to these criticisms? 
Well, I haven't seen that many officials, so public government officials who have accounts. There are government agencies that do have Weibo right. accounts. So one of the best, if you're curious about Weibo, I think mm-hmm. is actually the Shanghai Environmental Protection Bureau um, Weibo account. It, it's just absolutely brilliant. I think that they've really mastered the art of trying to make environmental messages and information understandable to a larger audience. So, for example, on my blog, I wrote this recent post where the Shanghai Environmental Protection Agency had developed a cartoon character to try to better communicate to citizens different levels of air pollution. So, I like to call her Air Quality Index or AQI Girl. <laughs> and so, her the color of her hair changes depending on how severe pollution is outside, and her expression also changes. Oh, good. So, for example, if air quality is hazardous. Then her hair turns a bright maroon or purple, and that's consistent with the air quality index codings that are in the official guidelines. And she's crying, and tears are just falling down her eyes. <laughs> she's and really just she's very upset. upset because the air quality is just so poor. But then on the other end of the spectrum, if air quality is very good, she's very very happy. She's got bright green hair that signifies wonderful air quality. And so this is something that the Shanghai. Environmental、um, agency created to try to better communicate and to allow for Chinese for their citizens to better understand different levels of air pollution and what the index actually means. So they they shifted from an old version to a new version that was more consistent with the U.S. Air quality index, and to do that, and to try to make it more understandable to a lay audience, they developed AQI Girl, which I think is absolutely brilliant. So we're seeing—I think that is a great example of a response to an online presence that is、mm-hmm. critical of the government.、Um, I would th- call that sort of a soft response. It's it's,、right. it's more communication and education,、yes. but it is a response. Do you do you think there's any m- more? I'll say harder responses. Like, do we see、yes. policy discussions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we see yeah. laws changing? Oh, definitely. So, I think there are two examples, and again, I'm just going to point to air quality. So,、uh, recently, after the 18th、um, Communist Party Congress meeting last、um, October, November,、mm-hmm. actually, it was in November, they decided to develop a new policy that is called a social risk、uh, assessment. So anytime any industrial project or any business wants to get constructed, they have to go through an environmental impact assessment. Oh,、and、like our NEPA、yes. system. Exactly. So it's it's similar to the United States. And so what the Chinese have now instituted, actually immediately following and after all of this Weibo activity and and Chinese netizens voicing their displeasure over air quality measurements, they implemented a law that says that now every project also has to go through a social risk assessment. Oh, similar to an environmental impact assessment, so that this is supposed to gauge the social impact or the the riskiness to society for a particular project. And and social impact is how livelihoods will be affected or quality of life. Yeah, so it, it's、like? actually more more it's it's those things, but then it's also more the response. So how citizens,、oh, how this might actually how, affect social stability. So how risky for us? Exactly. How risky for the government? Exactly. So、Very it's more, yeah, it's more about that, and so that's that's one hard policy response. The second is is that the Chinese government has decided that they are going to try to revise some new regulations with respect to air quality, and they've actually solicited、um, citizen、um, input into this process. And so、wow. that's something that has changed. And I think that Weibo absolutely had a huge influence in opening up these channels within the within the government. So I think that it's actually absolutely inaccurate for people to characterize 
China as this absolutely authoritarian, closed-off regime that is completely inflexible and unresponsive to its people. Because, um, I mean, you you were just there recently. I yep. mean, did you feel like you were in a communist country when you no. visited? No. Uh, yeah. You know, what I, what I noticed, I think a lot of travelers noticed, because people kept talking about it, who I was with, um, is is how ostentatious the displays of of wealth and consumerism are. There's a million shops. You know, I felt more like I was back in Manhattan than exactly. I was, um, and I was in you know Southwest China, which is not the like well known bastion of of Western development. Right. Exactly. I think those images of Mao's communist China with everyone wearing their Mao suits and kind of looking all the same and things looking very no well and you spoke uh, you spoke about air quality girls hair i saw yeah. lots of <laughs> you actually saw those shades of maroon i saw those shades of hair yeah it was it was uh, it felt very free in a way i didn't expect until i tried to use the internet and was frustrated and logging on to my favorite facebook account that's true yeah um yeah. so you still have these these you know you might think of them as like soviet style control mechanisms yes. Uh, I went to see Cloud Atlas, and it ended an hour early. I was confused. <laughs> Turns out the government had censored 47 minutes of the movie. Yeah. So I need to see it again. Um, but I, I do appreciate what you're saying, which is that things are changing in a way we don't appreciate from the outside. And it's almost it sounds almost like a convergent evolution, which is that they're creating these public forums, these mechanisms for public response informally, in a way that probably mirrors our own, maybe despite themselves. Yeah. The government, yeah. that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's it's not helpful or useful or constructive at all to try to pigeonhole or to try to define what this this transition these these transitions that China is now experiencing. And so that's why whenever I speak to anybody about what's going on in China, what their policies are, how things are evolving and changing, I'm very careful to caution that it you can't just apply these labels, um, at point blank in in China because there are so many different contradictions. There are so many. It's very yeah, complicated. It's very com. It's very complicated. That's yeah, what I. Yeah. That is what I discovered when yeah. I was there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it sounds like they're changing a lot. They're changing much more quickly than we can keep up with over here with our sort of limited knowledge of what's right. going on. Do you think the Chinese government um, and also the citizens are aware or responsive to these criticisms from outside? Um, you know the ways we talk about China. Oh, very much so. Very much so. They are constantly reading the Western media and mm. the New York Times. So, for example... So it matters what yeah, you say. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think it absolutely does. And the Chinese are always... Whenever I go over there, they always want to know what the United States is, is doing and, and what I'm thinking and, and what my thoughts are and how we view X, Y, and Z policy. And it's it's quite interesting because you're never really quite sure whether or not those actually sink in or whether or not they make a difference. Because the Chinese, for the most part, they know what they're doing. They don't need the outside world. They don't need Westerners to come in and tell them how they should be doing something mm -hmm. or how they ought to be doing something. They know exactly what it is that, that they're doing. And I mean, I've worked in a lot of other developing countries and with a lot of other partners and been to a lot of uh, places where the situations are, are quite different, where you can clearly see the need for capacity building and in China, it's just you just get the sense that they already have these these big issues already figured out, and they definitely care and they want to hear what other people have to think. So one example that comes to mind is in 2009, 
where you had the UN climate negotiations that, that this was, was in a Copenhagen. Land, yeah, that was in Copenhagen. It was a landmark event whereby this was going to be a tipping point and a change in international climate policy because everybody wanted China and developing countries like India and Brazil to, to take on to real targets yeah, to commit for to binding targets, right. gas reductions. Right. And it didn't go well for a variety of reasons. And, but China ended up taking the blame. So there were yeah. international headlines and a notable op-ed in The Guardian that said, how do I know that China wrecked the Copenhagen deal? Ooh. And it's because somebody was said that he was in the room. And China was took that very, very much to heart. Wow. They were very, very upset about that. And they ended up um, having all these meetings internally to try to figure out why they failed so, so miserably internationally and, and how much their reputation had been damaged by what happened. And since then, they said, okay, we need to redouble our efforts and we need to actually change our strategy because wow. what we did in Copenhagen didn't work. Now, now, is that strategy for public relations or is that climate response strategy? I think it was for public relations, okay. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, which is what every country's doing. Yeah, exactly. Because you, the reason why you participate in these meetings, the reason why the United States still continually goes to these meetings without bringing anything to the table because we still have no climate legislation is because you want to be viewed as a responsible player and as a contributor Right, you got to do your system. minimum. Yeah. Well, you and I were in Durban for the yes. 2011 climate conference. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't in Copenhagen in 2009, but... I noticed that the Chinese government in general had a really low profile. I didn't see them appearing in, in you know, press releases. I didn't see them oh, in yeah. meetings. Um, and they sort of slid by a lot of the criticism. I remember protesters outside were directing their anger at, at um, Canada yeah. and their yeah. tar sands. And I think maybe China were, uh, succeeded in their yeah. public relations shift. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that was absolutely a concerted strategy on the part of the Chinese to change their narrative and to change mm. how they are communicating. Because what they did in Copenhagen is they were very defensive and they weren't open about what it is that they were doing. And there was a lot of misunderstanding because they were very reserved. They weren't very open. And they said they, they realized after that that event that that wasn't going to work for them. Right. They have so, to appear yeah. at least to be more transparent, to be more cooperative. Exactly. And since they're the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, these things matter. Exactly. And so that's what they realized for Cancun. So they involved the press. They invited a lot of NGOs to meet with them prior to the- Now, Cancun was the last climate talk. This was 2000- No, that was the one after Copenhagen. So that was in 2010. Okay. But so... there was a, a- And I've written on this as well. So you, yes. can, you can read some of my analysis Maybe on my I blog. Will. Yeah. So there was a, a noticeable shift between their- performance in Copenhagen versus Cancun and most of it was because they were communicating about what it is because China is very proactive I think on many accounts in terms of climate change but the problem for Copenhagen is that they weren't communicating that and so they ended up coming off very defensive and the U.S. actually ended up really winning on a lot of these really key issues and uh, U.S. didn't end up looking like the bad guy. China ended up taking the fall. And so they said, absolutely, we can't have the world thinking that we're not doing anything on climate change because we feel like we're doing our part and we feel like we're being very proactive. And in fairness and, to them, yeah. they, they're probably doing more than we are. Yes, right. Um, moving, moving back a bit, mm -hmm. you were recently in India yes. um, taking students on a tour of cities. I'm wondering if you can comment on the differences or the comparisons that you're seeing between China and India mm -hmm. in terms of all these issues, um, responding to development, building new cities, right. 
um, addressing energy concerns. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a very very good point. And so I taught an undergraduate seminar this semester with Karen Cito, who's a professor in the School of Environment. And this is a, a brand new course that we designed. And the title is from Dongguan. Dongguan is is a city in southern China that where a lot of these suppliers have their factories. So the the course title is from Dongguan to Delhi: Urbanization and Environment in China and India. And the whole point was for students to compare patterns and trends of urbanization and environmental impacts in both of these countries. And so we took all 15 students to these two countries over spring break, and they had the opportunity to see these things really in the flesh. And I was just blown away by the differences. I mean, oh, yeah. I think there are a lot of similar similarities, but um, in terms of the awareness, in terms of what the government's doing in terms of the environment, India is just is just behind. They're just wow. at least I would say a decade behind. So in terms of walking around the streets and speaking to to citizens, people were not concerned about air pollution. The government is really their primary concern is about poverty alleviation and um, and economic development and trying to to really grow their economy. And so the environment is really secondary. Whereas in China, I think now we are seeing that the government is actually putting the environment front and center. So the new president, the new party secretary, Xi Jinping, he said when he um, in in the in the transition, we need to now incorporate ecological progress or ecological civilization into every aspect of development is moving this, forward. Is this because China's environment has degraded so much more than India's that it's front and center? Uh, you know, in India is sort of still doing fine, or are we seeing that they both have very similar environmental problems? One country is just more attuned to it. They have similar environmental challenges, absolutely. And because they have the two largest populations um, out of any country in the world, right. then I think that they face similar challenges in that respect is how do you economically develop and provide a certain level of income and standard of living for the people and not to degrade the environment to ruin the situation for generations to come. And we've seen levels of, say, air pollution in Delhi and other big cities in India. Worse, uh, yeah. Often worse or yeah. very similar to exactly. the cities in China. So it's not as if India doesn't have a problem. Yes. They're just um, more focused on, on growing yeah. the economy now yeah and there's not as much global attention on india's government as well so i think that's also a huge difference is that there's not as much data or information with respect to the extent of india's environmental challenges the media is not as focused on india as they are on china for various reasons we can that's a whole nother podcast right right so (laughs) let's come back yeah exactly so yeah i think that that they're just now just not even thinking about how to how to tackle a lot of these environmental challenges their number one concern is economic development well angel once again this has been terrific thanks for coming in talking with us yes thanks so much for having me